Well, as we spend uh, a few weeks in Romans chapters 9 through 11, uh, I guess uh, one of the things that we're going to do is think about Israel. And of course, uh, sadly, Israel has been on the front pages of the paper and the leading story uh, uh, on the nightly news uh, of a lot of recent times due to uh, what is to many of us a familiar thing, which is the ongoing violence between the state of Israel and the people of Palestine. Uh, and uh, I, I bring that up because what I hope is that part of what will happen as we uh, consider these uh, parts of scripture is we will uh, consider uh, what our relationship as Christians ought to be to Israel. Um, so we will consider that over coming weeks though. For uh, today, uh, we're thinking a lot about how it is that we understand uh, some things that are very hard to understand. I don't know if you ever have one of those moments where you just have to trust the experts. Maybe you're getting uh, a little nervous about uh, vaccines because you keep reading about people getting blood clots or something like that. But at the end of the day, you go, well, hang on, uh, I'm, I don't know what's going on, but the experts, the scientists, the doctors are telling me it's safe. At the end of the day, I need to place my trust in someone who knows more about these things than me. And we'll see in a little while how uh, that kind of idea relates to us and God. Uh, Romans 8 finishes with the, those great words of uh, Paul reminding us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he moves in chapter 9 to go from expressing his great joy in what God has done through his son to expressing now his great sadness as to what is going on with the people of Israel. He says in verses 1 through 3, he expresses his sadness. I'll just read to you verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because of the unbelief of Israel. These are God's chosen people. These are the, the ones whom uh, uh, Kerry was telling us uh, God kept sending people to help them and kept trying to guide them and, 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 and now he sent his Messiah and uh, his one and only son, the one whom they were looking forward to and they've rejected it out of hand. What's going on? Why? This is causing Paul great anguish. But he loves his people. And so not only does it cause him anguish, but it raises a, a series of uh, questions and the questions that Paul uh, raises in response to the unbelief of Israel we see uh, fall out over the next uh, 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 over the chapter first of all the question is in verses 6 through 13 has God's promise failed let me read to you from verse 6 where Paul answers the question. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see, the thing is, if 
God chose a people and they are rejecting the Messiah, does, doesn't that mean that somehow God's word has failed? If God's people are not repenting of their sins and trusted in Jesus and they were promised, the promised people of God, does that mean God's word has failed? And Paul says no. No, we can be sad about what's going on for the people of Israel. But it's not as though God's word has failed. For all who are descended from Israel, for not all who are descended from Israel, are Israel. That is, Paul says, actually when we think about the stories of Israel, God's saving power has never actually been about race or nationality, but rather about spiritual rebirth. The memory verse that the kids uh, are reading, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, that's what it's meant to be one of God's people. And Paul's saying there's always been a difference between uh, Israel, the ethnic nation, and Israel, the spiritual nation. God's sovereignty is, is not up for debate in the unfolding plan of his salvation of whom he will save. God has worked sovereignly in the past and he will continue to work sovereignly today and uh, uh, in Paul's day. Paul says, verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. God has always been working sovereignly to save those who trust in his promises. And he gives the little example uh, of Isaac and Jacob, which we'll come to in a moment. But of course, if God has been sovereignly working out his purposes and saving for himself a people who trust in the promise, then Paul raises the next question. If God's word hasn't failed, does this mean God is unjust? which is the question he, uh, he goes to in verses 14 through 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Going back in verses 11 through 13 to the story he tells of, uh, from the Old Testament of uh, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac, uh, the, the question is, how is it fair that Esau be judged if God had predetermined that Jacob would be blessed? And Paul answers that question first by showing us what God has already revealed about himself to Moses back in the Exodus when he says to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, quoted for us in verse 15 of Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is... God is not unjust because his salvation has never been about what we do, even from the beginning. It was, <coughs> excuse me, it was about his mercy. Again, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, 
but on God's mercy. And Paul continues by uh, uh, taking us back to that Exodus story and giving us the example of Pharaoh. And he quotes again from Exodus 9.16 and Exodus 14.40 and he tells us that Pharaoh that God is using Pharaoh for his own purposes, to bring glory to himself, that he works powerful, that he's working through the situation, the, the saving of Israel and the condemning of Pharaoh and uh, his armies. Uh, he's working powerfully by his mercy and grace to bring salvation to those whom he chooses. The, the problem of Israel not responding to Christ is not a new problem, is I guess what Paul is saying. That there have always been people who have uh, received God's mercy and seemingly those who have not. God has had mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he has had compassion on whom he has wanted to have compassion. And of course, this then raises the next question, which I think perhaps is the biggest question of all, which is, if God's sovereignty is not up for debate, if God has always been in the business of uh, doling out his mercy and grace on whom he chooses and uh, potentially hardening those who harden themselves like Pharaoh, how is it fair that we can be blamed for our sin? Why does God blame us for our sin if at the end of the day, we are simply recipients of the sovereign mercy of God or not. And so this is where Paul uh, goes to try and uh, answer the question, verse 19 through 29. He, he, he raises the question, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? And I reckon the first time that this was ever read or, or written, uh, people thought, ah, oh, thank goodness, the inspired word of God is going to give us the answer to one of the perennial questions of, of life, of, of theology. How is it that the relationship between the divine sovereignty of God and the fact that we seem to be held responsible for our choices and our sins, how do they go together? Well, Paul's raised the question. I assume we'll get an answer. What answer do we get? Well, it's a little dissatisfying. But who are you, verse 20, a human being to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The, the answer is almost like, back in your box, you jar of clay. John Stott, as he reflects on this posed question and the seemingly strong, like, how dare you ask that question, helpfully uh, comments and says, this is not a censure of the one who asks with a sincere heart a genuinely perplexing question, but rather someone who quarrels with God, who talks back or who answers back, 
who manifests in their questioning a spirit of rebellion against God and a refusal to let God be God and to acknowledge his status as creator and ours as sinner. Instead of presuming to be able to take issue with God, we instead ought to be more like Moses, keeping our distance, humbling ourselves, taking off our shoes, hiding our face for him, or like Job, putting our hands over our mouth, repenting of our sin and sitting in dust and ashes. That is what we learn from this little interaction where Paul poses one of the great philosophical, theological questions about the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Says that there's basically two ways you can, you can handle this. You can take an attitude of self-righteousness, thinking that you know better than God and that you've got more sort of logic and understanding than God and so if it doesn't make sense to you, then clearly it can't be right, even if God says otherwise. Or you can humble yourself and continue to trust in God. And this goes back to that sort of illustration I had at the start about, you know, vaccines and, and trusting those who, who know more than you. Because this is essentially what Paul's telling us here. He's saying, you, you can't actually uh, get into the, the mind of God on this issue. All you can know is what he's revealed to us, and that is that he is the sovereign ruler of the world having mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion and holding us responsible for our response to him. This is who God is. The scriptures tell us both realities. In fact, our lives reflect both realities and how they interrelate Well, actually, thankfully, we can't get right up to the truth because the thing about God is he ought to be unfathomable in some ways. You see, if, if God was completely fathomable, if, there, if you never had one question about the logic of God or, or how God worked then he'd be no God at all. He'd just be a set of human-made philosophical ideas that you'd hung together yourself. But if God is indeed the logos, uh, the, 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 the wisdom of the world, and if he has chosen to reveal himself and reveal what we need to know about him in order to have relationship with him and in order to find our ways into his grace and mercy. Then this is indeed more likely to be the God of the universe. Not completely understandable, but one whom we can understand through his word. John Stock continues his reflection on this passage, saying, 
Paul here does not tell the whole story. For human beings are not merely lumps of inert clay, and this passage well illustrates the danger of arguing from an analogy. To liken humans to pottery is to emphasise the disparity between us and God. But there is another strand in, <coughs> in biblical teaching which affirms not our unlikeness, but our likeness to God. Because as we have been created in his image, and because we still bear it, though distorted since the fall, as God's image bearers, we are rational, responsible, moral and spiritual beings, able to converse with God and encouraged to explore his revelation, to ask questions and to think his thoughts after him. In consequence, there are occasions in which biblical characters who have fallen on their faces before God are told to stand up on their feet again, especially to receive God's commission. In other words, there is a right kind of pro uh, protesting before God, which is a humble acknowledgement of his infinite greatness, and a wrong kind, which is a grovelling denial of our human dignity and responsibility before him. As people made in the image of God, it is right that we relate to our God, that we seek to understand his revelation, his ways, his will, but that we do so with humble hearts, without pride or arrogance, thinking that somehow we know better than he does. Well, there's more we could say, but we'll continue Moving on, Paul moves to argue that in fact rather than God being unjust in judging people, rather God may actually be revealing more of himself when he does. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for his glory? Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That is, in sort of going back to this whole problem of what's going on with the fact that there are people like the Israelites who, who don't trust Jesus. What if somehow in all of this, this is God acting in perfect accordance with his his wrath and his mercy, uh, and he's, in doing so, teaching us something about who he is. The fact that God punishes people in his wrath for their sin, in fact, reveals something about his grace and mercy. For when he saves, it makes that saving grace more glorious and wonderful. Many of us today start from the wrong place when we consider God's relationship to humanity. And uh, I often used to have these conversations with people, especially when I was a, as a, working as a youth minister. People would say, how can God send someone to hell? How can God condemn anyone? And I said, that's an interesting philosophical question. Let's ask a little more personal one. Where do you think God should send you? And they go, I thought you were a nice youth pastor. Um, 
And I'd say, look, here's the thing, right? I've got no doubt in my mind that without Jesus Christ and him crucified and without me repenting of my sin and trusting in him for my salvation, I am going to be one of the first in line for hell in my own strength. So, And if he can send me, he can send anyone. Where do you think you deserve to be? Where do you think anyone deserves to be? but for the grace and mercy of God. The fact that God pours out his saving grace on people is a marvellous and wonderful thing. And in fact, God has been planning to reveal his mercy on uh, all people, not just the Israelites, uh, since the beginning. Paul, in fact, quotes this. He says, in fact, we ought to expect the kingdom of God to expand with the coming of the Messiah. He quotes in verses 25 to 29 from uh, a variety of places in the Old Testament, uh, talking about how the, the, the prophets promised a, a multitude of Gentiles and a remnant of Israel in the kingdom of God. And Jesus hints at it as well in his own ministry. If you go and read Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Israelites expect that simply because of who they are, they'll be straight in. They're proud, they're arrogant and they fail to have humble faith. This whole section shows us that the acceptance of the Gentiles is attributed to the sovereign mercy of God and to the hardening of hearts of the people of Israel, to their own rebellion. The Gentiles don't earn their way in, but the people of Israel, who should have known They've had the scriptures, they've seen God work, and yet they chose to ignore, to do their own thing. They are responsible, and so they find themselves outside the kingdom. Well, Paul wraps up this section, this chapter, uh, thinking about the problem because it seems like a problem. It doesn't seem like a problem to us that there are more Gentiles in the church than, than, than Jews, but back then, it seemed like a major problem. What do we do with this problem of Israel being outnumbered by large numbers of Gentile believers? Well, whatever we do with it, we need to remember what it teaches us and what it taught them. And it taught them that the road to God, the road to salvation, the road to righteousness comes not through our own strength or our births, but through faith and rebirth. 
Romans 9.30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, when it turned out that the road into the kingdom of God was not through proving yourself to be a good person, but humbling yourself before God and trusting in Christ, the cornerstone, who has become a stumbling block to Jews. They fell. They stumbled. Whereas those who had faith entered into God's mercy. Now, there'll be more to say about the relationship between what God has done in Christ and, and, and what that means for his promises in the Old Testament in coming weeks. But for today, as we've considered all of this, and you might have more questions to ask me later, I think for now, I want to leave you with this question, which is, are you trusting in the mercy and grace of God for yourself Because it's easy to become self-reliant when you've been in the church for a long time. You can think that your salvation is certain because you come to church every week, because you give generously, because you're the fifth generation of church-going uh, Anglicans, or because uh, you're uh, not like someone else. You're a good citizen. You stand up for the right causes. You share the right things on Instagram. There's all sorts of reasons why you can think that God ought to accept you. Just like the Jews. God ought to accept me. Jewish, I'm circumcised, uh, I go to the temple, the Pharisees love me, I'm definitely in. But faith alone saves. And when Christ comes to those who trust in themselves, their history and their works, we, you stumble right over that. You mean that counts for Nothing. I'll not have it. Christ alone brings the salvation, grace and mercy of God. And we hear this truth today in the last verse. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. My encouragement to all of us today is to trust Jesus. For in him you find mercy, grace and the forgiveness of sin. It's a sure and certain thing because of who God is and he's revealed it to us in his sovereign plans and purposes. The one who believes in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. Amen.